Richards Bowie Versus Tillian Is this year when I'm glowy Am I killing? I hope it's not a blowy Or a villain It's time for Bowie versus Dillian. Welcome back once again to Jones versus Zimmerman. I'm Charlie, and I like Jones. And I'm Jake, and I love Zimmerman. Today we're taking a look at that year of all years, 1964. Mm. Uh, and it's unique because it's the first year we're actually looking at for a gentleman. And with that in mind, we're looking briefly at all years prior to 1964 as well. Very briefly. <laughs> the Jones versus idea. Because in 1964, David Bowie was not David Bowie. He was Davy Jones. Ah. Uh, Bob Dylan was Bob Dylan in 1964. But previous to that, he was Robert. So we're looking back at those years and taking a gander at all this. Uh, before we get into everything, I once again want to remind everyone that they can find us all over the internet. We are on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, Blueberry, and you can also follow us on Facebook or Twitter. What? To get out there. What's Twitter? Find us. Or just, of course, go to that wonderful website, www.bowieversusdylan.com. Yeah. Yeah, hot traffic site. Yeah, high traffic. Hot traffic site. That's, that's right. Hot. It's a hot site. All right, I'm going to take a look at our old man here, Davy Jones. Yes, please. Davy Jones is what his uh, his stage name was in 1964. We'll get into that later on. But first, I'm going to take a look at pre 1964. Mm. Um, now there isn't as much to talk about with Davy Jones as there is with uh, Robert Zimmerman because Robert Zimmerman got his career started a few years earlier, like actually got his first releases out. He also took off immediately, whereas Davy Jones took five years before he had any kind of real success at all, and it was about ten years from when he started in bands until he really cemented his stardom. His wow. first band was 1962, and in 72 was Ziggy Stardust when he really, like, that was when he was locked in as a, this is an important guy. Supernova. Long term. So, background really short background because we're really focused much more on the music than on their personal lives sorted as they may be at times yeah. uh bowie had came from a fairly average family well davy jones is a very average name so i get it every he is favorite name just so average he got into rock and roll early interesting facts jake right here i'm blowing him up right at you <laughs> he here's Fire an actual man. interesting one he went to school with peter frampton yeah that's crazy i don't peter know peter frampton's dad was like the headmaster at his at his high school oh davy so come to my school i don't know how well they knew each other peter frampton's i think three years younger than bowie okay so they wouldn't have like moved a lot of the same circles but apparently peter frampton's dad wanted them to play together or something like do music together because they both like music uh. i don't know if that happened at the time uh bowie's a young man could play the recorder the ukulele, mm. the tea-chested bass, the piano, <laughs> the <what? laughs> and uh, Go back. most notably the tea-chested, the tea-chested, the tea-chested bass. I don't know what that is. What you is know that? more about musical instruments than I do. Well, I don't know what that is. Music major in college. What is a tea-chested bass, Jake? Tell and us right now. The answer is I'm going to need some more school, and I have no idea. Okay, sounds good. And the saxophone was his big one. That was what really got in there. Uh, notable early life thing in 1962. 
while he's still in high school. He got in a fight with his friend George Underwood oh. over a girl, apparently. Yeah. Um, accounts are, you know, I know sketchy about all this, but it sounds like it was kind of Bowie's fault. No. It sounds like he said something or did something he really shouldn't have done. Underwood, who they ended up being good friends afterwards, too, and he actually, like, they played together afterwards. Underwood punched him in the face mm. and permanently damaged his left eye. Oh, what? And so his eye, this is, you know, a kind of a classic Bowie thing is those weird, his eyes look weird. And yeah. most people think that his two different color eyes, but he doesn't. So that's not actually true. His left eye suffered permanent damage. Whoa. And so he had a permanently dilated, it was always dilated at all times, permanently dilated eye. What? Which is one of the reasons why he wore an eye patch, like, later on. I mean, it became part <laughs> of his, like, Diamond Dogs oh, yeah. era look. But he, like, he would just need to wear an eye patch sometimes, you know, when your eyes permanently dilated at all times. I did not know that. Like, yeah, this is fun fact. And it was from a fight with George Underwood, who would later go on, They like, the two of them were big into bands and stuff. And apparently the, uh, the general consensus around his schoolmates was that George Underwood was going to be the successful musician and uh-huh. not David Bowie. Or David no. Jones. David Jones. David Jones. David Jones. <laughs> but he stayed friends. They were in a lot of early bands together. Uh, George Underwood did artwork on some of his early albums, oh. including the back cover of Space Oddity. Wow. So there you go. Okay. And apparently they, they got they made up. They kept being friends afterwards. But yeah, he permanently damaged David Bowie's eye. He had surgeries and stuff. It's, it's hard to say what happened. So Bowie graduated from high school at 16, which is a thing that, like, people did in Britain in the 60s or something. I don't okay. understand British high school, but I read enough books to know, like, it's always, like, O-levels, and took an A and blah, 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 and, took an, and I don't know what that means. Uh, and I probably could have researched it, but apparently I didn't. Jake, mm-hmm. apparently I didn't bother to do that. So he was out of high school, like, legitimately at 16. This wasn't, like, a weird thing that he, you know, was a prodigy and graduated early or something. Or he didn't just drop like, out or something. And started working in advertising. <laughs> hey, all right. Which I'm sure came in lots of handy later on when he was, you know, advertising himself, creating brands and all that kind of stuff. So he wanted to be so, the he wanted to be the man who sold the world, basically. Is what you're saying? Well, he started selling it. Maybe I don't know. I don't know. He don't. He didn't want to work in advertising. He just kind of had to have a job. Yeah, so, of course. You know, that was what he did. So he worked in advertising for about a year. Oh. And he was in bands and stuff. He started being in bands while he was in high school. So this is all overlapping, of course. Um. And he started in his first, you know, few phases of the genre because he was already jumping genres by within a couple of years in this. So he kind of started out in kind of a Stone style R and B, and got a little more bluesy different different times. There's definitely a Beatles sheen to a lot of what he's doing. Sure, but uh, he was in a lot of bands. And so, Jake, I have got one of two different multiple choice questions for you today. Ooh, so. Here's my first one. Multiple choice question number one. I'm bringing it today, by the way. I'm getting these right. I was embarrassed Yeah, you'll, last you'll time. get this one right. I was embarrassed. You'll get this one right. It'll All right. Okay. Uh, by the end of 1964, Bowie had been, or not Bowie, Jones, had been affiliated with which of the following bands? Okay. By the end of 1964. By the end of 1964. So there are more bands after this is the important thing. He didn't really strike out super solo until about 67. All right. the end of 66. Okay. I'm not going to get this the, right. <laughs> not you are. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, the Conrads. Okay. The Hooker Brothers. <laughs> yeah. The Delta Lemons. Uh-huh. <laughs> Dave and the Bowmen. <laughs> what? The Bow Street Runners. Okay. Dave's Reds and Blues. Yeah. The Wranglers. The Wranglers. The King Bees. Uh-huh. 
the Jonas. Yeah. And the Manish Boys. Or all of the above. You gave me ten bands. Yes, or all of the above, Jay. <laughs> all right, well, the only possible answer is all of the above. I told you you get it. Yay, all right. It. There's no other possible answer to this question. Let me just keep going with that. Wait, Dave and the Bowman? That was interesting. Dave and the Bowman. Dave and the Bowman, here we come. Now, not, not all of these bands, like, full-blown existed. They were, the Hooker Brothers only played a couple shows, and some of these, in the, in the ones in the middle, especially the, the, the more fancifully named ones, yeah. were ones that Bowie was like, I think it was the Hooker Brothers, he kept changing the name, and they may have not even played any shows with these new names he was giving them, or like he was imagining, or thinking about, like, no one even knows. Yeah, sure. But they were all, either, you know, I got on this list of these interesting names, I had to throw them all in there, obviously. That was awesome. <laughs> so. <laughs> Way to go. <laughs> and then, again, that's only through 64, we've got more in 65 and 66. Wow. So, there you go. Were any of those all uh, were any of those all miming outfits, or were they all music? What's that? Were any of them all miming outfits, or just music? Miming really didn't start up until a little bit later, Jake. Oh, okay. Don't worry, we'll get into more miming. You know, <laughs> let's get to that miming. It comes, it comes I back. Think that but he's not really talk. into miming yet. Okay. Uh, my second multiple choice question. We'll just throw in there. <laughs> it's at, by the end of 1964, which of the following, because he did not become Bowie until like late 65. So we'll talk more about that transition and everything when we do 65 or whatever point. Yeah. But by the end of 64, which of the following stage names had he considered taking on? Okay. Dave J. Dave J. Luther J. Luther J. <laughs> Alexis J. <laughs> yeah. Or Tom Jones. Or all of the above. He considered taking on all. <laughs> oh. I mean, I gotta say all of the above again. It's all of the above. Yes! Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you're really. Those are cream puffs. I actually got those. <laughs> Tom Jones is my favorite, but to be Yeah, fair, I was gonna say, that Tom, is hilarious. So your Tom Jones had not. He hadn't done anything yet. Oh, Tom like Jones hadn't done anything before yet? Before Tom Jones had his big break. Oh, okay. I thought maybe he so was already on the scene. he's not really trying to take someone else's, you know, stage name. Okay. I mean, he was already Davy Jones, <laughs> just like the guy from the Monkees. So, you know, he was, I was go going to say, he had Tom to have Jones, been. Just like Tom Jones, you know? That is so funny. Tom Jones. Why would you change it from Davy Jones to Tom Jones? I don't know. I don't know. He was thinking about it anyway. Okay. I don't know if he actually went by any of those. He did a lot of thinking that, Davy Jones. <laughs> well, he was he a was busy guy. Yeah, he was. So I'm going to leave things there. We, we start wow. All right. getting into 64. He's got two main bands, the King Bees and Manish Boys. Manish Boys is also a fabulous and ridiculous name for a mid-60s rock group. Well, that's... <laughs> that's <laughs> made up of teenagers. <laughs> that's because... Uh, that's because there was a famous blues song called Manish Boy. Oh, I that's know. the dun 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 dun. That's the Muddy Waters song. Okay, all right. Because that's where some of his names, like like uh, Hooker, came from. Uh, what's John name? John what's Lee name? John Lee Hooker. John Lee Hooker. Yeah, yeah. yeah so blues. Lee Hooker, yeah, England was in the grips of a American blues. You know. Oh yeah, though it was all about America. Sweet, sweet end of freedom. Loved it. <laughs> Way to go. Got it. I probably lived in most of his adult life in America. Yeah. Go go, Dave. Yeah. Go D. DJ. He so been... there are there's a heady mix of completely irrelevant things and interesting facts. Thank about you. About pre 1964, David Bowie. Thank you. I'm not sure if I know any more about him now, but that's 
<laughs> no, I do. You I know, know all. I didn't know any of it. Some of the band names he was in. And you know, you know, Jake, you know how, why his eye looked so weird. Now that, that now that. else was learned from the short segment, you learned that. That's so. very interesting. And now I will not. I'm going to turn things over to the slightly more illustrious early 60s career of uh, Bob Dylan. Well, Bob Dylan, um, you know, from his birth until the, you know, beginning of 1964, which we're demarcating here with our year, has basically, like, hardened into American folk legend at this point. He's like... I know, he's already there. He's like Paul Bunyan or something. <laughs> and it he didn't... like Paul Bunyan. It, made, it didn't make matters any better that as soon as he um, started his career, um, he had this air of mystery and sort of wonder about him because he was spouting every kind of lie about his life that you could possibly think of, like, to the press. That is, that's something interesting that Bowie and Dylan have in common. This kind of self So Bowie did that, too? Just lies. Just straight-up lies all the yeah. time. Dylan, Dylan blew into New York, or maybe he picked up this after he came, because he went to New York twice in his early career. Um, both are sort of legendary trips that he made there. Maybe it was during the now, second one when... Did he grow up in, Jake? All right, fine. Let's start at the beginning. Bob Dylan, excuse me, Robert Zimmerman. He has like three Jewish middle names too, but I wouldn't dare oh. try to maybe uh, pronounce those. I don't need to. Okay. So uh, he was born in 1941. He was born in a hospital in Duluth, Minnesota. You're familiar with it. I'm familiar with it. But he quickly it's a moved. State I know so well that I live in it. Jake. You live right in it. You're right I'm there. Duluth, but I live in Minnesota. I'm just saying. It's true. He's not just saying that, folks. He really does. <laughs> Uh, which means that he feels some sort of ownership over Bob Dylan. The whole state does, really. Really, only for his like his first eighteen years or something. Then he banned forever. <laughs> After that, he never really came back, did he? No, he really still, didn't. He passingly time, Jake. he passingly mentions you occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> we got, when Scott Fitzgerald did the same thing, so we were yeah, we're yeah. You guys here. are used to it. You're used to it. Um, he, uh, he was, he quickly moved to Hibbing, Minnesota, which is an iron ore mining town in very northern Minnesota. Both these places are. This is like as close to Canada as you can get, basically, without being in Canada. Um, and I think he looked around and when maybe he was like four days old and he said, I gotta blow this town, man. I gotta get out. <laughs> he oh just, God, uh, he was, like that as a baby. <laughs> Bob Dylan did. <laughs> hey, mom. <laughs> Let's move to New York. Uh, he was a good boy, apparently. A good Jewish boy. He was. Uh, he had, apparently, an ineffable kind of quality to him. Like, he was very outgoing, and he had these piercing blue eyes, and he was always smiling and entertaining everyone. He was, like, a very... Okay. Uh, he was a very precious, sort of a cute kid. And so uh, they trot him out when he was a boy to, like, sing for uh, parents' dinner parties and stuff like that. Um, his parents were in pretty well standing, not rich by any means, but certainly well standing within the community. Um, they owned at least for a while, a furniture store, I believe they had like one movie theater downtown and all this kind of thing. So, uh, Bob quickly felt like he was outgrowing old Hibbing, you know, um, old Hibbing, Minnesota. He dreamt, he dreamt of getting away. And one of the ways he did that is he would tune in late at night um, now, warning here, anything I say that he said he did could be apocryphal or <laughs> could have just not happened. He said he did it. That, that's actually yeah, this is just this is just part just of the legend. Of him saying he did it. It's like Paul Bunyan was 12 feet tall with eyes like jellied fire. It's basically like that. 
Paul Bunyan also from Minnesota. That's right. Exactly. That's what I mentioned. Good analogy here. Yeah. Hey, let's talk more about Minnesota today. <laughs> Minnesota. If we had a whole episode devoted to Forrest Gump, we might as well go. <laughs> well, you know, I think there's a little bit of gumpishness to Dylan's early career. I gotta say. <laughs> Uh, we'll get to that. Anyway, uh, he, where was I? Oh, he would tune in to his radio at night and he could get stations, um, on a clear night from like St. Louis and Chicago and Minneapolis and places like that. And that's when he discovered all the blues and all of the country music and all of everything. They didn't have that music, um, where, where he lived. Um, and, on his high school graduation day, this is another kind of legendary thing. Somebody put, somebody gave him, he doesn't know who gave it to him, but it was a Ledbetter record. Oh. Um, this is the old African-American singer um, who, I think he was famous in his day, at least amongst like record collectors and things like that. Yeah. Uh, but he certainly wasn't known to the Minnesotans. So on the eve of him going off to college, basically, he discovered this music, and he was just taken by it. He was completely, he was completely taken by it. He had already been um, enamored with, uh, oh gosh, I want to say Jimmy Dean, but that's not true. Who's the Who's the rebel without a cause? James Dean. James Dean. I just want Jimmy Dean too. So you're good. Yeah, there is. Jimmy Dean's also the sausage. <laughs> That's right, but also a country singer from way back when. Uh, oh, okay, all right. Okay. So Get James Dean, he loved James Dean. He loved Marlon Brando. He mm, loved definitely. loved him some Elvis. Uh, and he loved all this stuff he was hearing on the radio. So he was when he went to the University of Minnesota, uh, he was he was packed with all this sort of like love for all this music. And then when he got down there to college, he uh, elected to skip class pretty much altogether. I'm not sure he went to very many classes at all when he got to college. <laughs> uh-huh. He decided not to do that. He fell in with the like bohemian crowd in Minneapolis, like Uptown, okay. uh, Dinky Town was a big, all that stuff. Dinky, was... Dinky. Dinky, right? You remember Dinky yeah. Town? That's yeah. over there. I, I love mean, the you... cities, yes. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> so anyway, that was the hub of like the liberal folk socialist, all of those buzzwords were all going on there. And he met a whole cadre of people um, that would very much influence him and sort of bring him along. And his quality back then was this, like, lost, like, funny boy. Like, he was, he didn't really have a home. He's, he lived in a Jewish fraternity for who knows how long, two weeks or something like that. Um, he was going to, he went there... And his parents wanted him to do the right things, and he like immediately did all the wrong things and didn't uh-huh. didn't participate. Uh, but popular he got trend. popular trend amongst college students. Absolutely, yes. He went full bore, baby. Uh, he uh, he started to learn to play guitar. He started stealing records from other people's record collections. He like could not <laughs> he could not get enough of this music. He was just soaking it up like a sponge. And this this is probably the beginning of. Um, this quality that he has that he appears to have always had and continues to have, which is he can hear something or read something and soak it up in a way that he can then turn it back around and make something new out of it 
Um, this is why everyone, you know, not everyone, people have a problem with him based on these plagiaristic tendencies, sort of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he's drawing from all these different influences and things and then uh, sort of reappropriating it or something like that. Like, this is... It's kind it, of a boy quality, too. Like, the way you're talking uh-huh. here, I see more of parallels between the two of them. They were both... They're probably personas and they're, they're, they're self mythologizing That's and right. yeah, borrowing stuff from all kinds of other people and then turning it around into something even better and releasing it again. Right, and then getting getting called on it later. Like, hey, yeah, you that stole that. Yeah, that was because it was closer to plagiarism with Dylan than it was with Bowie. Probably, but at the same time, this is he was in the folk tradition, which I know I've explained this before. Yeah. Like, um, Just because he was able to do it better than everyone else um, doesn't mean that it's not like a tradition <laughs> to do that. But anyway, he was with the Folkies. He started playing guitar. He would play wherever he could, coffee houses, parties, this and that and the other thing. Apparently, he was not anything special in those days. He was just like all the okay. rest. Um, while he was still in Minneapolis there, he picked up a book uh, by Woody Guthrie. It was Woody Guthrie's autobiography called Bound for Glory. And uh, much like the Leadbetter, and much like you know Elvis before him, and Leadbelly, Leadbelly. I'm wrong on this. Oh, I think, no, there's a Huddy Leadbetter, and there's a Leadbelly. I don't know which one it was. Okay. Gosh, right. you might be right. It so, might have yeah, been the okay. Leadbelly. I think you might be right. Anyway, both were folk musicians of some stripe, so mm-hmm. it was one of the two. Uh, Dylan, uh, what was I saying? Oh. He read, the, he, what, he read the Woody Guthrie autobiography, and he became Woody Guthrie. Like, he was so enamored with this thing that he started to dress like him, talk like him. He started talking in a Dust Bowl accent, like, <laughs> dropping significant portions of words, and he started writing like that, you know, with all these apostrophes and abbreviations with the words. I uh, started talking like a hobo, and that's, I think, because Woody Guthrie actually was, like, this crazy traveling... Um, crazy traveling musician who went everywhere and saw everything and met all these different kinds of people. That's, I think, where Dylan picked up this tendency to start lying about all the stuff that he had done. He wanted, okay, despite, sure, sure. you know, despite being like 18 or 19, he wanted to be like a 40-year-old hobo, basically. <laughs> so, but ironically, by the time he was a 40-year-old hobo, <laughs> then he was trying to make like shiny pop hits. Well, by then he was like an out-of-touch rich white guy, pretty much. <laughs> Uh, so then he hears that Woody Guthrie is dying in a hospital in New York. And this is, I believe... How does he hear this? Well, he's in this crowd. He's in the crowd of people okay. that, would, that would know this. Like, people... He was, okay. he, was, he was talking with people that actually had been with or knew Woody Guthrie. Okay. So, kind of word got around, you know. Or he Googled it. Whatever. You know, he might have just Googled it. Like, where <laughs> is sounds, Woody Guthrie? sounds plausible. Yeah. Early internet, for sure. And he decides, I gotta go, I gotta go see Woody. And he either hitchhikes or drives or does something to get himself to New York. And he shows up in New York like on a freezing winter day with nothing. And he somehow figures out how to visit Woody Guthrie in the hospital. He played him some Woody Guthrie songs, I guess. Woody Guthrie was pretty much out of it at this point. Okay. Guthrie had Huntington's disease, and he was in the he was in the late final stages of that disease. 
Uh, okay. So he was receiving visitors and all that stuff. So Dylan met Guthrie, and that was like the big watershed moment in his young life right. at that point. Then somehow, maybe because of the people that were also visiting Woody Guthrie, he became acquainted with the folkies and the leftists in Greenwich Village in New York City. So then he started sleeping on their couches. And this is, this is apparently, you know, via this process of playing in coffee houses and all this stuff, or learning from people that were already there, you know, New York being a much bigger pond than, than Minneapolis at the time. Uh, he, this is the word, and supposedly he sold his soul to the devil. All right. I forgot about that. The chief commander. He went, <laughs> he went to the chief commander, whoever that might be. And he said, yo, I want to be really good. And somehow, you know, he became really good in a short period of time. So much so that when he went back to Minneapolis to sort of lord it over everyone that he had all this experience all of a sudden, um, it was like he was a totally different musician. He was so much better, apparently. So he sold his soul to the chief commander. Well, so what, did it like wear off or something in the late 70s? Or, <laughs> I kind of thought that would be like a for life type thing, you know? Well, it seems like think about, they didn't get a very good deal. Think about this. Let's say that the chief commander is actually <laughs> Satan. And yeah. so he initially sells his soul to Satan. But then in the late 70s, as he lost his magical powers, he became a born-again Christian. And he gave, oh, his, so he gave his soul to Jesus. Right back. Like, yeah, hey, the devil's like, whoa, that's not the deal <laughs> whoa, we made, bro. That's not part of the deal, man. Bro, that's not the that's deal probably, we made. That sounds very likely. That's probably what happened. I think that's what happened. I'm going to assume that that's exactly what happened. I think there's videotape of it happening. Yeah, sure. oh, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And then I don't know what happened <laughs> when he got good again in the 90s. I think he just, he, he aged into a fine wine by that point. He, <laughs> he belonged to nobody but himself. <laughs> and it was just sporadic after that. Yeah, that was just and that brings sporadic. up to the present day. And then he, I don't, I don't even, you know, this is kind of a people's history of Bob Dylan because I don't know the exact timeline of all this stuff happening. Um, but he's back in Minneapolis. He's great. But it's like, I got to go be, I got to go be big. I got to go be famous. So he goes back to New York and leaves Minneapolis for good at that point. And then it's kind of when his legend begins. He starts playing everywhere. In New York, he meets, you know, the people that would be famous in his life. There was a, a girl named Susie Rotolo. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her last name right. But that was Bob's first great love, besides, like, there, oh, was, one, there was one high school love. Maybe, sure, maybe sure. two. But this was, like, his first great love. Um, she is pictured on the cover of his second album, um, The Freewheeling Bob Dylan. It's a very famous That's picture. That's where he's, like, walking down the street with the yeah, lady. Yeah, it's all slushy. That's the lady. Okay, all right. Uh, so they are a thing. They're an item. She was from a, maybe an artsy family, like a family in the New York art scene, I believe. Okay. So just a little, you know, definitely a few steps up from where Bob was, sleeping on everyone's couch. Um, and they had a very tortured relationship. There's books written just about their relationship. Because okay. her sister, like, ended up, was a huge early Bob Dylan fan, but then her sister ended up hating him because he kept cheating on her with Joan Baez and a bunch of other women. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's the kind of personal life thing that doesn't need too much explaining. Yeah. Yeah, but he met, you yeah. know, he met all the people. It's all about the music. He met Joan Baez, he met Ramblin' Jack Elliott, he met the Seeger, Pete Seeger and uh, all those people. And so that's when he kind of got swept up into this folk movement. He got his first record contract 
from John Hammond, who was the legendary um, executive at Columbia Records, who had signed like Miles Davis and yeah. pretty much everyone you know famous, Frank Sinatra, pretty much everyone famous in music. This guy had come in contact with. And this guy, you know, saw the folk boom coming. There was no folk boom yet, at least in the popular imagination. And he sort of chose Dylan um, as the as the purveyor of this of this folk boom. He would end up signing Peter Paul and Mary, and all kinds of other people later. Um, so he gave Bob Dylan a record contract, like I don't know, a few months after he blew back into New York City, and everyone in the folk scene was like outraged. <laughs> Like you got a Columbia Records record contract for what you know? And he went in See, there. In my head, I'm still thinking of the movie Inside Lewin Davis, right? Which would be like paints a very nice picture of the you know just barely pre Dylan yep folk scene in New York. Yep, exactly. And all these people just desperately trying to make it work and feeling right. miserably. Yep, and doing like novelty hits or trying to yeah. do novelty songs. And yeah. then there's the purists who would you know. There was a number of record labels back then that were working out of New York that were just doing like pure folk music, oh, and yeah, these people were like, "You can't, you know, office. you sold out, you know." Yeah. And then, um, there, there was there was definitely a tension between the Tin Pan Alley um, songwriters who were writing all the the major pop hits. People didn't write their own songs back then, right? Which is one of the things we take for granted now that Bob Dylan basically he didn't invent it, but he popularized it to a degree that now. You take that for granted. Like, there wasn't singer-songwriters back then. Right. People would cover other people's songs. Like, the folk tradition was all about, like, let me do the best version of Let Me Die in My Footsteps or whatever song it was. Mm -hmm. And they would make their names off of that. And um, so for Dylan's first album, uh, which is self-titled, he went into the Columbia Records studios and he played for, like, two hours and he played, like, 14 songs. And he's like, that's it. <laughs> I'm out. And everyone there was used to Frank Sinatra doing 52, you know, rehearsal takes with the orchestra or whatever. Uh-huh. So they released the album with one original song. It was all folk songs that he thought up that he thought would be nice to play that day. He didn't think any further or he just <laughs> went in and sang some songs that he had been singing a million times in the city. Um and then song for Woody, which is his very first composition that ended up on an album. And which is the inspiration for Song, Song for Bob Dylan by David Bowie later on. That's correct. Gotta make these connections every once in a while, Jake. You know, the circle will be unbroken. <laughs> no, it will be... What, wait, yeah, wait, okay. no, it, yeah, it won't be broke. It will be... It won't be not unbroken. Will it be unbroken? Never. It not. It's a circle. That's what we know. It flopped, the album. A big flop. They, they called it Hammond's Folly. John Hammond. Uh... I don't know how much he signed Bob Dylan for. It could have been. It was probably like pennies on the dollar, based on what yeah. he was paying for everything else. But um, you know, the backlash. The backlash continued for Bob. That is until he recorded the Free Wheelin' Bob Dylan, which okay. uh, is just you know among the most classic, among his most classic for sure. If not, yeah. you know, not his best, but his first great album. It had Blown in the Wind on it. It had Girls sure. from the Country. It had. I don't have that one in front of me, but um, so that took off. And then everything was fine again, um, and then he goes into that was in 1963, and then he's pretty much the toast of the town. He's the bell of the ball. He had a few hiccups, which are interesting. 
he received this award from like a, uh, it was called the Tom Paine award. It was from, um, I think it was a socialist organization or an ex- at least an extreme left organization, but it was like moneyed New York people who wanted to honor him. And so they gave him this award. He was like 20, maybe 21 sometime, sometime after this came out. And he went in there and he got wasted because he was nervous. And he proceeded to just like tear down everyone in the room. <laughs> he called them old. He said there's no hair on their head. He said, I don't, I don't recognize myself in any of you. I don't recognize the music that I'm playing in any of you. Why are you doing this? Why are you giving me this award? And he was like slurring his words and they had to kick him, <laughs> to kick him off the stage. So he was always Good cor- one, he was always courting Good a little one. bit of backlash. So we come into 1964. He's on a high, for sure, amongst like young hip people. He was just about to be the darling of protest song New York. Oh, he played on the March on Washington uh, in 1963. Okay. You know, next to Martin Luther King and with Joan Baez. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's crazy. I find that I find that to be. Like, he was there, like, when Forrest Gump goes to Washington. <laughs> there you go. Bob, Bob Dylan's Dylan there. was there. <laughs> That's why he's Gumpish, I feel like, in these early years. It's like, there he is, getting a recording contract with Columbia Records. Oh, there he is, standing next to Martin Luther King. The The CGI is really bad. There he is, lip-syncing. <laughs> you know, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, yeah. All right, so Paul Bunyan goes into 1964. You know, pretty much fired on all cylinders, and we'll get to that. Yeah, after you tell me about Davy Jones in 1964. <laughs> 1964. Woo! We're already like taking too long in this episode. Yeah, we cool. are. But I don't have as much to say. This is that. your fault. What? Okay. <laughs> so Bowie's got two bands in 1964. He starts out in the King Bees. Uh, he was working hard, of course, to try to make them into the Beatles. He got into this while he was still in high school. Yeah. Oh, uh, shoot, am I getting this right now? You know, I'm thinking of the Conrads. Never mind. Um, he's out of high school, by the time he gets to the King Bees. And he's trying to make them into the Beatles. Yeah. Like, and so they're not exactly, it's, it's more towards the uh, the kind of Stone-style R&B sound than the Beatles. There's kind of some Beatles sheen to it, which is unsurprising in 1964. Of course. He, uh, he really wanted them to be big, and so he wrote to a washing machine entrepreneur, <laughs> because apparently such things exist. Yeah. Named John Balloon, inviting him to, quote, do for us what Brian Epstein has done for the Beatles and make another million. Wow. It's a lot of gumption here. So this is like this local washing machine <laughs> magnet, apparently, because these things exist. And uh, so, awesome. yeah, Bowie's like the, the cojones to try to get this guy to, you know, be Brian Epstein to his King Bees, <laughs> which I can imagine how this went because, you know, no one knows who the King Bees are. Uh, he went so far as John Bloom went so far as to book them for a it wasn't a wedding it was an anniversary party I think it was his own anniversary party uh-huh. uh, <laughs> so they came rolling in to play too loud R and B to this anniversary party for you know some magnate who presumably was middle aged uh, they were kicked off the stage after ten yes minutes. <laughs> they should have been. <laughs> Good one, Bowie. Kind of, kind of messed it up there. So, any worries <laughs> that John Bloom was going to be there, Brian Epstein? She just blew right out the window. Just blew right out minutes. of this. <laughs> get, get out! Get but out! There was a guy at the party who was a partner of some variety with John Bloom, named Leslie Kahn, 
who decided that yes, he would be their manager and that this was like possible and yes, let's go for it. So Leslie Kahn becomes their uh, manager. This doesn't last very long on anything. But he uh, he helps them a little bit. You know, they play some shows. They're playing tons of, you know, it's just that period. You know, you're playing any show, anyone who lets you on stage. Absolutely. They're, they're there. They're doing this. Whatever is possible, they're there. They're going to try it out. They're going to try to get any exposure they can. Yep. They eventually manage to get a single made. They release a single in 1964. They do. So this is Bowie's first single, first record release of any kind. Wow. Davy Jones with it's credited to Davy Jones with the King Bees. And it's a song called Liza Jane, which we're gonna do more when we get to the points. Is that the is that the famous song, Liza Jane? Like, hey, little Liza, little Liza Jane. It's inspired by that ah, song. Gotcha. Like, that's they don't have a standard that's you know, nobody even knows the author of that. Again, we'll get you a little more at the points. Alright, fine. Uh the the single that you know, does manage. He gets a couple TV appearances. He plays on I think, two or three different shows. Gets an interview out there. He gets plenty of radio play. Flops anyway. Nobody oh, cares. flops! Poor Davy cares. I know, I know. It just sounded like going. Poor you know, Davy Jones. Bob, with the King Bees. Bob did not have a lot of uh, experience with like total flop failure, except for that first album. It seems yeah. like Davy had had more cracks at it, and he he, went, he had he five straight years starting now. Yeah. five straight years until Space Oddity. It's nonstop. Wow, he kept going. Way to go, Davy. Well, he didn't. He didn't quit. So, uh, spoiler alert, Jake. He did not <laughs> quit here. He kept making music. Okay. <laughs> so, not long after that, he kind of dumps the uh, the King Bees because they're not, I know, creative enough. They're not going the direction he wants to go. And he takes up with the Manish Boys. Again, yeah. he does this a lot in this period. He's jumping bands. There's often one or you know two bands going at the same time. Yeah, He'll be playing you know like alternate nights with these different bands and trying to find just the right one to yeah. make his mission. He sends tends to slip into bands and in whatever he can and then take them over. <laughs> that happened multiple times. Like he starts as, as a saxophone player with the uh, the Conrads, and within a few months he's the lead singer and, yeah. and writing songs for them and everything. Yeah, he has a tendency to do that. He's kind of an overwhelming oh, guy. Oh, Davy. Uh, but there seems to be some guy to understand it. He's, he's got some kind of talent there. People seem to see this with him and let him do this. So he slips over to the Manish Boys, who were already a pretty well-established band, but um, were happy to take him in anyway because he had like a single. He'd, he'd released a record, oh, yeah. which that was like a big deal in itself. You know? he, he's got this record. This thing happened. Um, so they get together. They do, not, they do release... Uh, I think two singles in 65, so I don't have to say that for 65. They don't right. release anything in 64. They do go on a mini supporting tour in northern England, and they support such acts as Mary and Faithful mm. and the Kinks. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that is big time. Yeah, were the Kinks anything yet? I don't remember. Did they have Do You Really, really Got Me Now? Do You Really Got yet. Me or whatever? I don't remember if it came out yet. Anyway, you at least two notable, notable acts, you know, yeah. supported. Uh, there's not a lot to talk about with 64, as I said. You know, Fine. it's just kind of how it goes early career. But yeah. I do have one real, real special thing, real special uh, TV interview to tell you about. Today. Tell, tell me all about it. I think you're really going to enjoy this. It's one wait. of Bowie's. At first, I thought it was his first interview. It's not. He does have earlier interviews from 64, at least one. Um, I couldn't find any of those early 64 TV appearances based on how unimportant he was at the time, I'm going to guess they don't exist anymore because yeah. they, were, they were wiped. They gone. The common practice in the 60s is uh-huh. uh, they taped these things and, they would, and the, the tape was still usable. You could wipe them and use it again. And tape was expensive. So there's a lot of classic stuff from the 60s, especially Oh, for sure. Yeah. They got wiped and it's just gone. It just mm-hmm. doesn't exist anymore. 
But there was one real choice interview that did not get wiped. Uh, so Bowie set himself up as the president of an organization. <laughs> what? And this organization got its found its way into an interview spot on TV. And uh, the name of the organization was the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Men with Long Hair. What? <laughs> <laughs> and it's oh my god, Jake! After today's show, I'd really you just go look this thing up. I have so, great. so many questions, but I'm gonna let you. So he, it's just him and most of, like the other Manish boys, and there must be other guys there because it's, it's several of these guys with like long hair. Yeah. Now, I mean, it's not that long by our standards today. It's not like right. you know, mid back or something like. It's like how the Beatles they, look you, outrageous. It's like Beatles. It's like a little you know, one step past Beatles. Like yeah. there, at least nine <laughs> inches worth of hair to be in this society. Apparently. <laughs> that was the rule. Great. And uh, <laughs> and then this guy interviews them very, very seriously about the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Men with Long Hair. And they're just talking about how, you know, like, I mean, we just like long hair and we shouldn't be, you know, stigmatized because of that. You know, we just walk down the street and, then, and there's people calling us darling or saying, uh, hey, can, I, can I carry a handbag for you? And we just, <laughs> we just don't appreciate that, that kind of treatment. You know, it could affect us. It could affect our, our jobs and stuff. And we just, we don't think we should be treated that way because just because we have long hair. <laughs> so apparently this was all kind of a joke on Bowie's part. It was taken very seriously by this interviewer. What? Apparently he just, like, did it for publicity and for, you know, trying to get something happening. Yeah, to be funny. Work, which it did a little bit. I guess so. This interview was taken very seriously. And the thing is, they obviously didn't think this through very well at all. So he's asking them all these, you know, questions about, well, what would they actually like to see done? What does the society actually want to happen? And, uh, and they don't really know. <laughs> they don't really have an answer to that They question. hadn't thought that far. Oh, man, it was the best four minutes of television I watched wow. in the last month, I think. It's so great. It's on YouTube. It's okay. so great. It's just the whole thing. Just like sitting around talking about their long hair. And there's all these like provocative shots of these guys looking pensive <laughs> with their long hair. And this interviewer, who is bald, by the way. Oh, of course. Uh, and he makes a crack about it at one point. It's just, just taking it very seriously. I really enjoyed it. So it's just a little... It's just a little honey of an interview for yeah, you. Yeah, hey. It's 64, Tip and Bowie. Sounds, sounds amazing. It just really made it, made the year for me. <laughs> and that's all I got, Jake. That's now it, I'm huh? Let's talk about in 64. When we all get right. to points, I will count up his one single. <laughs> his and super I'm single. And I'm pretty confident he's just going to blow Dylan out of the water yeah. in 64, Jake. I don't all see right. how Dylan can top that one flop single. That you Boy know... Released. Not when Dylan released two of two Stone Cold classic albums in one year. Yeah, you know? no, but yeah, he can't top Bowie. No. He's not going to be able to top Bowie. Uh, Dylan started out in 1964, uh, releasing in January his third album, his seminal album, "The Times They Are a Changin." Oh yeah, reaching number twenty in the U.S., number four in the U.K. Um, the the British love was already on for Bob at this point. Oh yeah, they loved his whole shtick. Um, this is the first album that Bob wrote to feature only his own comp- compositions. These were all new Bob Dylan songs, whereas before okay. he had done at least one or two covers, um, and all covers, basically, in the case of his first album. These are yes. stark, sparsely arranged ballads. It is um, no humor. No humor time. Not funny. <laughs> Bob. Not funny. Bob had a whole streak. In fact, he started his career, um, I should mention, by being like, 
kind of a funny guy. You know, he'd come out and do like antics. He was kind of full of antics when he would play his live shows and he would joke with the audience and he would play lots of upbeat numbers um, and talk in blues that were funny. He was very clever. And um, he remains clever on the times they are changing, but he is not funny on this one. So, needless to say, this became like the the anthem um, for protest singing, for protest okay. songs at this time. Um, the the cover is very famous. He's he's looking very serious. It's kind of a close up shot of his bust, and he's uh, it's got like kind of an oversaturated black and white cover, almost like a silver tone. So it looks like a dust bowl <laughs> portrait. He looks like yeah. he looks like it was taken in the 1940s. Um, this would be the last time that he wrote protest songs, quote unquote, deliberately and specifically, um, because of the reaction that it got. Um, he didn't appreciate so much. He didn't want to be already. He didn't want to be kind of labeled as this as this guy um, that was the the uh, the badge for protest singing. Um, this is. A period, uh, these recording sessions are mined just extensively. Like, I don't think there's one outtake or anything that hasn't been released in some form on his bootleg series um, in particular. Like, this is such a a gone-over, this is a combed-over period, a well-combed-over period. Um, There's some questions as to whether it was actually explicitly protest music. Um, People tried to label it as that, um, especially critics and then his fans. Uh, But if you listen to the lyrics, they're not... You know, they don't, like, explicitly say, let's do this or let's do that. It's more of uh, wondering and worrying and trying to go over what's wrong with things. Uh, <clears throat> digging for truth, things like that. Okay, so he releases that, and then he takes a 20-day cross-country road trip because he realized that he had been selling all this uh, pizzazz about him being a hobo and learning music in New Orleans and all this stuff. But he had actually never been anywhere besides Minneapolis and New York. So he decided to take three friends and go on a road trip um, for 20 days. He had some shows to play. He was still playing, you know, odd places. Um, He had just gotten management. um, So he was playing uh, like high school auditoriums and stuff like that. Kind of wherever. Yeah, he would end the year um, or end his touring schedule in October playing the New York Philharmonic um, Concert Hall. Which, slightly better than a high school auditorium. Sli- I guess. Sli- you, you if think you're into so. that kind of thing. You think the acoustics were, you know, so so. <laughs> um, and he took this trip and he composed all the songs for his next album on a typewriter in the back of the car. So he just sat there, like drinking and taking drugs and composing his next album in 20 days in the back of the car. <laughs> okay. um, he heard somewhere on this road trip, he heard I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles and lost his mind. He loved it. He loved it. Okay. He loved it so much. They were just glued to the radio. And by the end of that year, I think like the Beatles had the f- top five singles in America, I think, something like that. Okay, yeah. So this was Beatlemania, like straight-up Beatlemania, and Dylan loved it. Apparently, he met them in August 28th of that year somehow. Okay. Maybe in New York. So the first meeting between the Beatles and Dylan, and this apparently is when Bob turned them on to marijuana, thus the apocryphal <laughs> version. Uh, he oh, was gosh. like, here, try this. And apparently they did. And uh, that's when they went out to film Help. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's because of Dope. That's, that's, that's the story. Who knows? Uh-huh. 
Uh, <laughs> I'm worried about Dylan anyway, who is 100% accurate all the time about his own life. Well, I don't think I don't think he had anything to say about that, which means it's probably okay. not it's probably not true if he doesn't comment on it at all. <laughs> this was according it's to more likely to be true then. You know, I just gotta I just gotta stop for a second and say like it must be weird to have an entire year of your life or or three years of your life like people know what he was doing almost every day this year. Uh-huh. Isn't that crazy? That's so weird. It is crazy. Yeah, so um, I'm just giving you the, the quick hits. Apparently he took LSD for the first time, speaking of drugs, but this is this is maybe, this is a maybe. It certainly uh-huh. uh, apparently led him to Rimbald and some of the other French existential poets and stream of consciousness writing. This is People try to find reasons why he ended up writing the way he did. Apparently LSD is, they definitely, uh, they definitely give that credence. Uh, he went to Europe to do a tour, and he hung out with Nico of oh. Andy Warhol and Velvet Underground fame. It's be pre then, before then, though. Yep, it would have been before then, yeah. Until 67. That's right, that's right. So, Nico was... She was a model then, right? Yes, a model in Europe. Yeah. Apparently, she had a baby, and he wrote okay. he wrote a song called I'll Keep It With Mine, which is a Dylan... A Dylan Fringe classic. He wrote that about Nico. Oh, this son, uh, uh, Chelsea Girl. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. You got it. All right. So he wrote that one. Nico's about her. Drama. Yeah, it's a good song. Uh, let's see. He played the Newport Folk Festival in July. He was an absolute sensation the year before at the New York, the Newport Folk Festival. It kind of like mm-hmm. shot him into superstardom um, in, this, in these folk circles. Um, he met Johnny Cash for the first time there at the Newport Folk okay. Festival. He did a Canadian TV show. <laughs> Don't ask me when or how or why, but apparently this exists. Um, and then he, let's see, where is... Oh, and in August he released Another Side of Bob Dylan, his fourth studio album. Um, it went this is the one he wrote while, uh, while yep, on the road trip. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. So he was all, he was all um, of a Twitter because he had been you know, uh, pigeonholed into this protest singer, and he was sick of it. It was one of these classic Bob things where he recorded the album in October 1963, the times they are changing, that is, and he was uh-huh. immediately over it. He was going to move on. But then, of course, it didn't come out for, like, four months. Right. And everyone got, you know, the hype cycle started then. But he was already done with that. He wanted to go and write <laughs> other kinds of songs. And uh-huh. So he was, he was very annoyed and so another side of Bob Dylan deviates from this kind of social consciousness things. Um, the folkies were predictably upset, although I didn't realize exactly how upset they were. Here's some critic. Here's some critical um, roasting for you um, okay. about another side of Bob Dylan by the folk, the folk rags, the magazines. "Quote: An unqualified failure of taste and self-critical awareness." Ooh. Uh, oh, Bob. Uh, quote. Somehow he's lost touch with people. This was this was seven months after the times they are changing came out. How long is this after the last? <laughs> I know every day must have been just people were thinking way too much. Days then. were lo- days were longer then. You know, I often think like it's such a terrible thing we have all our phones and stuff like that, but we could have dispensed uh-huh. with a lot of this a lot quicker back then. Uh-huh. Uh, and quote was caught up in the paraphernalia of fame. Bob Dylan, yeah. Bob Dylan himself said, "Quote: There aren't any finger pointing songs. Uh, this was much more introverted and introspective. He, uh, you could look at it as him kind of popularizing. This is when he kind of popularized singer songwriter stuff. Okay. He, was, he was looking inside, like he kind of telecasted the 
the big singer-songwriter boom of the 60s and 70s, especially the 70s. So he wasn't talking about other people. He was talking about himself. And he, this was definitely transitional to um, his mastery of that uh, stream of consciousness style. Um, for instance, he wrote but did not put on the album Mr. Tambourine Man. On okay. Song. And the first song that he wrote, or released, I should say, of this, of this kind of style that he would become you know, very good at in the next couple of years is called Chimes mm-hmm. of Freedom. I'm sorry, what? Chimes of Freedom. Chimes of Freedom. Yeah, sounds, sounds like a protest song. Sounds like a protest song, but is not. Okay. But it is like an eight-minute, you know, thing with like uh, 21 verses or whatever where he's, he's <laughs> using like all this, song. he's using all this fancy wordplay and he's, he's getting, he's getting real clever with that. Um, there are some, uh, actually I'll talk about this when we do the points. I'll just talk about, yeah. you know, some of the classic songs that are on each of them. Oh, last thing, just cause this struck me as funny. Um, when he was, uh, he went in for one session in their studio to record another side of Bob Dylan. And um, he, quote, polished off a couple bottles of Beaujolais and just <laughs> played them all, all night. And that's it. That was the whole thing. So they picked <laughs> they picked whatever songs they wanted to put on it out of that. And then there were a few outtakes like Mr. Tambourine Man, uh, which he would play live. And four of these songs off this album were recorded in the next couple of years by The Birds, the American rock okay. Four okay. <laughs> off this one album. <laughs> So never let them tell you the birds didn't make their bones off of Bob. I think everyone would say that. But if they I, I don't... I won't let anyone tell you that. If they don't, you tell I them. I never have and I never will. Punch them right in the face! <laughs> All right, point it up, buddy. Point it up. All right, for those at home, we have a complicated, uh, ever-shifting system of points. Very important. The important thing to realize is we have a different number of points for different types of things and that <laughs> negative points are possible. Yeah. So that bad stuff actually counts against. I, I don't expect any negative points, actually. So, Bowie in 1964, not Bowie, Jones in 1964, yeah. released one single. It is called Liza Jane. It was created Baby Jones with the King Bees. Yeah. It's not Liza Jane, but it's definitely inspired by it. Okay. Um, for some reason, the songwriting is credited to their manager, Leslie oh. Kahn. And no one really knows, seems to know why this is. <laughs> uh, oh, man. You know, I don't know. It was easy to get ripped Famously, off back then. after this flop, Leslie Kahn had his... He, he did, did not stay manager very long. Like, he wasn't, you know... He just kind of, like, jumped into this to try it out. And I know he didn't stay very long. But years later, he was working somewhere else. And he was uh, talking to his mom on the phone. Yeah. His mom's like, hey, what should I do with all these... Uh, the birds in the in the garage. He's like, oh, I suppose you just throw them away. No. <laughs> so oh, all bad. of the unsold copies of Liza Jane were seen in his garage. Wow. And got thrown away. Now they go for hundreds of dollars. <laughs> of course they do. Yeah. <laughs> so you know. So he was a yeah. terrible music manager, is what you're trying to say. <laughs> Apparently, I mean, I don't know when this. It probably, it, it presumably was before Bowie became anything at all. Yeah. Or, yeah, that's so true. Just, I couldn't find what when he actually did this or what time frame was at all but presumably it was before, it was pre-space oddities so it was just in the next five years I don't know uh, the beast is called Louie Louie Come Home okay it's a cover song of a song made popular by Paul Revere and the Raiders yes Louie it's not Louis. a famous oh. song Louie Louie oh it's not it's a sequel of sorts written by them <laughs> to Louie Louie to cash and in and then Louie covered Louis. that okay great so I don't know anyway it's it's decent <laughs> You okay. know, and I can't, I can't, you know, it's his first release out there. It's definitely listenable. It's not painful by any means. Okay. It's not super imaginative, not super, like, 
But you can, you get, you get a little like whiff of his, uh, his possibility there. Like he's a very theatrical singer already. He's got a lot of feeling and stuff in there. That's nice. I'm, I'm gonna give it a half a point. All right. Like I can't, you know, I can't say this is bad. It's not brilliant or anything, but it's not, you know, definitely not a negative point. So yeah, go for it. So Bowie 1964 is half a point. Just try, <laughs> just try and beat that. Just try. Uh, with two classic albums, I don't know if I'll be able to, but you I'm know, gonna try. Let's see, let's see what you could. I see off, like Jake. I see like zero point four points here. I think I'm going to be just under that. Maybe 0.45. <laughs> 0.45. You know, I wouldn't put it past us one day to get that serious about it. Let's not <laughs> Let's not do that. Let's not do that. All right, Bob Dylan had two albums in 1964. First, The Times They Are Changing, as I mentioned, the, uh, the humorless but uh, extremely famous and extremely influential protest album, quote-unquote. Um, some of the highlights are The Times They Are Changing, course uh let's see here north country blues was um explicitly about his hometown of hibbing so that's kind of interesting. nice one minnesota forever yeah. minnesota washington, forever bro washington state never jake washington had some people too i can't think of any right now but they have some <laughs> <laughs> uh let's see oh one of my very favorite bob dylan songs of all is the lonesome death of hattie carroll he read a story about the death of a African-American maid, I think in Baltimore, in a newspaper, and he just wrote this extremely effective song about it. Um, I nice. think it's one of my favorites just because it's, it's a more personal, like, you know, down-to-earth story about it. I can, I can grasp it better than some of his other um, protest songs. Um, I just the whole aesthetic of this thing is pretty awesome. Like, it's a, it's a very, uh, you know, people revere this one, for sure. And I do, too. I used to listen to this one quite a bit. And I like that he's not trying to be funny on it. Sometimes yeah. I don't sometimes I don't like early funny Bob. It's just a little too okay. a little too goofy for me given yeah. his given his obvious gifts. Um, so I'm going to give this a 4.0 times Oof. they are a change. Yeah. Oof-ta, out of a possible 5. Out of a possible plus 5. And then another side of Bob Dylan comes out and it is not a protest album, but it's still him and acoustic guitar and harmonica. Um, he gets back into very briefly trying to be funny a couple times. Um, it's more uneven. It's not as, okay. you know, the times they are changing is definitely of a piece. It definitely mm-hmm. flows and, uh, it has a, it has a similar aesthetic throughout. And this one, of course, he's just on guitar and singing, but it kind of, you know, goes back and forth between good songs and not so good songs. Um, some highlights are... All I really want to do is, baby, be friends with you. <laughs> Me too, Bob. Me too. <laughs> I love that one. Oh, the aforementioned Chimes of Freedom. Uh, My Back Pages, one of uh, his best songs, where he starts to um, get self-deprecating about his position as a, as a folk icon. Mm-hmm. He sort of takes himself to task for thinking that he knew everything that there was to know about everything. Um, is he like two at this point? Is he what? Or is he like 22 at this point? Yeah, already, yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, right, he's grown up and wise. Yep. Wisened up here. He wised up. That's what it sounds years. like. That's the one that's, uh, I was so much older then. I'm younger than that now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wise, Bob. Wise. Great song. Great song. And then he closes it out with, It ain't me, babe. No, no, no. It ain't me, babe. So he kind of, 
He's kind of going back and forth. Um, like I said, it's the start of his stream of consciousness writing that would characterize his best work. So um, he's got some of his best work on here and some of his not-so-good work. It sounds a little slapdash at times, his songwriting. Yeah. Is. Not as cohesive. Does it sound like he got drunk and recorded it all in one night? Yeah, at times. I think this is the one where <laughs> his guitar is clearly out of tune on one of the songs and it drives me crazy. It's like, get some auto-tune in there, guys. Um, so I'm going to give that a plus 3.0. Okay. So it's strong and bold. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a classic. Um, but it's just not as good as, it's not as good as the times they are changing and it's not as good as his, what was coming up. The, uh, the trilogy is coming up starting in 1965. So we gotta, we can't get too excited about 64. Um, his tour, which was kind of a slapdash thing where he drove across the U S and then he went to Europe and apparently he was in Canada, which I couldn't really, I got. I got overwhelmed trying to figure out where he was this whole year. Uh, but he also played the New York Philharmonic, um, which was his kind nice of one. his his early career triumph. So I'm going to give the whole tour a 1.0. Yeah. And uh, that's what he did. So 4 plus 3 plus 1 is an so, man, it was 8.0. Just barely, just barely squeaked it out over yeah, he uh, got a, half a point. Yeah. Big year for Bob. <laughs> With an 8. Those 60s. It's one of his biggest, uh, I don't think it's the biggest year that we've done. It might, it might be the biggest year we've done for him yet. For Bob, for sure. Double, you, double album years. That's a hard you. You had like a you had like an eleven pointer at some point. Yeah, well, that was yeah. We'll yeah, see I if did. anybody can beat that. If if anyone can, it'll be Bowie in the seventies or Bob in the sixties. Yeah, I, I know a year Bowie will beat that. Wow. Might okay. only be one, but I know a year he'll beat that. Yeah, I think maybe. I'm gonna save it. Yeah, save it up. Well, speaking of saving things, <laughs> what do we got coming up next time? Chaz. We got 2010. We're jumping Woo! ahead. We had Way ahead. 2010 for Six, next time. 45 It'll years be later? A, I don't know, different year than 64. That's for darn sure. Yeah. No We're more Davy Jones talk. We're Bowie's day vacation, that fallow period where he didn't release an album for nine, well, for ten straight years. And uh, who knows what Bob Dylan was doing at the time. He might have released an album then. That might be fun. What's up? I said he might have released a Latter-day album. Oh, we'll have to just find out <laughs> next time in episode 13 you of know, Bowie uh, versus Dylan. Why don't you next so, time tell me about Bob and I'll tell you about Bowie. <laughs> uh, well, Bob stank it up. We should <laughs> Bob Dylan all year. There. Negative I'm fives that's, across that's the board. That's what I give you. <laughs> <laughs> all, right, all right. I'm Shirley and I like Bowie. I'm Jake and I love Zimmerman slash Dylan. Oh, yeah. I love Jones. I mean, uh, I you don't even. We'll see you next time. You would have said you, so I mean, if you loved him. Not see you because this is a podcast. I uh, won't even listen to you. You'll listen yeah. to us. So you'll listen to us next time. Bye.